Good morning, and welcome to Queen's Law Pro Bono Radio. I'm your host, Mukhtar Hindi. Queen's Law Pro Bono Radio discusses interesting and off-center legal topics and aims to make legal discussions more accessible to you. We strive to stimulate interest and provide information while always being entertaining. This week's show is called Finders Keepers and is about the law of finders. This show deals with one of those legal topics that at face value seems really, really simple. But once you get into it, you realize it's much more complicated than it seems. It's one of those areas of law that is filled with twists and turns and many exceptions and caveats. This nebulous area of law is broad, and I've only selected a handful of cases and ideas to get us thinking. I encourage you to do your own research if you're interested and remind you that it's not legal advice, but simply food for thought. Now let's dive in. Imagine this. You're walking down Princess Street on a sunny Sunday afternoon when you notice a shiny object below a patio table belonging to a restaurant. You get closer and realize it's a gold bracelet. No inscriptions or clues are present. You ask the passers-by and the staff at the restaurant, but they have no idea from where the bracelet came and who its true owner is. To whom does this bracelet belong now? To answer this question, we need to explore the law of finders. This is the term used to refer to the collection of rules governing ownership of lost or abandoned property. Everybody learns a simple rule at an early age, finders keepers. This age old phrase is both simple and memorable and stems from the ancient Roman laws codified by Emperor Justinian. The law then stipulated that unowned property became the legal property of its first taker and when that property that was intentionally abandoned could be claimed by a finder. In cases where the abandonment was unintentional, the owner of the property retained rights to it despite its loss. The British common law, on which our Canadian legal system is based, later refined these concepts into something more. It came to consider finders to be what the law calls gratuitous baileys, kind of like custodians for the rightful owner, and ascribed to them certain responsibilities in relation to the found property such as caring for the property and making a reasonable effort to find the property's rightful owner. Moreover, whereas the Romans only recognized the finder as being a keeper where the property was intentionally abandoned, the British extended this concept in a watershed case called Armory v. Delamory. Armory was a legal case from all the way back in 1722. It was a dispute over the ownership of a valuable jewel that was found by a chimney sweep named Armory. The story goes that when Armory took the jewel, which was in the setting of a ring, to a goldsmith working for Delamory to have it appraised, the goldsmith removed the jewel from the ring to weigh it, and then returned the ring without the stone. He appraised the stone and offered to pay Armory for it. However, when Armory refused the offer, the goldsmith decided to keep the jewel anyway and refused to return it. Therefore, Armory brought a lawsuit against Delamory. The court thus needed to decide whether either of them had any right to the ring and jewel, since Armory was a finder and Delamory was just a taker. The court decided in favor of Armory, stating famously that, quote, The finder of a jewel, though he does not by such finding acquire an absolute property right of ownership, yet he has such a property as will enable him to keep it against all but the rightful owner, and consequently may maintain Trover, end quote. The case is often cited as the legal precedent for the phrase finders, keepers, losers, weepers. The rule from the case being that the person who finds an object is entitled to keep it unless the true owner can be found. It departed from the Roman law in an important way as it recognized not only that finders can be keepers for intentionally discarded property but also for lost or mislaid property as well. However, 
The law of finders is much more nuanced than this. The courts have added many exceptions and considerations after this case, complicating the finder's keeper's rule. One important distinction the courts have made is the difference between mislaid and lost property. The idea is that if context suggests that the found item was pl placed there purposefully by its owner, perhaps to hide or store it so that they can come back to claim it, then the law should lean towards giving the custody of the item to the occupier. In these cases, the property is not said to be lost per se, and therefore the law of finders and the armory rule doesn't really apply. In this way, they can ensure that the original owner of the item would be able to come back and claim it. On the other hand, the law considers lost property, for example, property that is not hidden or purposefully left by its owner, as belonging to the finder. This is because the policy arguments for mislaid property do not apply. And therefore, the courts usually have no trouble maintaining the finder's keeper's precedent from armory. Another consideration the courts look at is the circumstances where a finder finds an item. For example, in cases where the finder was a wrongdoer, the courts have been reluctant to grant the found, the found item to the finder, believing that a wrongdoer should not be allowed to profit from the wrong. In a case called Baird v. British Columbia, an accused was arrested as part of a criminal investigation for theft, and during the investigation, money and checks were seized by the authorities. However, the investigation was later dropped, with the seized assets kept by the police. The accused then sued for the return of the seized cash and checks. The court denied his claim to the assets, as he had admitted during the investigation that they were stolen. In this denial, the court used the principle of ex turpi causa non oritur actio, meaning from a dishonorable cause an action does not arise, and further said, quote, The conduct of Mr. Baird giving rise to his claim is so tainted with criminality or culpable immorality that as a matter of public policy, the court should not assist him to recover, end quote. However, as we will come to see in many of the other exceptions to the armory rule, this caveat is not applied uniformly. In another earlier case called Baird v. Town of Francis, where a 12-year-old boy trespassed onto a property and found some money stashed away, he took the money and started spending it. His spending habits made the police suspicious, and they eventually found him and confiscated the money, with the justification that they were going to look for its rightful owner. The boy then sued for the return of the money, and the court there clearly stated that a wrongful taker such as a trespasser to land, may bring about a lawsuit for the return of the goods they stole against a later person who, in turn, wrongfully deprived them of the goods. The court declined to comment on if the boy had any felonious or criminal intent as a trespasser because they said that the same result would flow regardless. The court presumably ruled this way for policy reasons different from those in the earlier case as it did not want people to constantly fight over items if no clear claim to the items was recognized and enforced by the law. Another important consideration that the courts have looked at are the ideas of exercising control over the land and or thing found, and showing an intention to exclude others from it. There exists a general presumption in the common law that an occupier of land has a right to possession of anything attached to that land. Pollock and Wright's essay on possession in the common law at page 41 says, quote, The possession of land carries with it, in general, by our law, possession of everything which is attached to or under that land, and, in the absence of a better title elsewhere, the, the right to possess it also. 
And it makes no difference that the possessor is not aware of the thing's existence. And it seems preferable to say that the legal possession rests on a real de facto possession constituted by the occupier's general power and intent to exclude unauthorized interferences. End quote. However, sometimes this general power and intent to exclude, which is basically exercising control, that is referred to in this quote can be missing, or the item can be considered not sufficiently attached or embedded in the land rendering the occupier of the land without a right to everything on the land. To explore this idea, we will look at four cases, which each add a little piece to this finder's puzzle. In the first case, called Bridges versus Hawksworth, the story is that a businessman who was visiting a shop found some banknotes on the floor of the shop. Being a good citizen, he left these notes with the shopkeeper in hopes that they would be claimed by the rightful owner. After three years, the owner of the notes still had not turned up, and so the finder asked for the notes back. The shopkeeper refused. The court here applied armory very simply, and said that the location of the finding of the notes had not mattered, and that the finders were the keepers as per the rule from armory. However, this straightforward application of the rule, while easy, is not always consistent. The second case called South Staffordshire v. Sherman considered a finder, landowner, or occupier situation with a different view. Here, the plaintiff hired the defendants to clean their pool, and during the cleaning process, the defendants found some gold rings and kept them, refusing to hand them over to the landowner. Let's think about this for a moment. A straightforward application of the rules from Armory and Bridges which can be summarized by saying that finders have a better claim than all, but the original owners, despite the location being the property of another person, would have these rings given to the pool cleaners. The court, however, did not want to incentivize employees and workers from taking things from the owners of a property. Therefore, the court instead decided that the degree of control an owner or occupier of land exercises over their land and found property to be a key differentiator in this case from the ruling in Bridges. It then established two exception rules. One, that when a servant or employee finds an item, he's presumed to have found it for his master or employer. And the second is that there exists a rebuttable presumption that a landowner has a better claim to an item found on the land than a finder, given that they exercise sufficient control over it, it being the land or the item. In other words, the court justified the departure from the rules of armory and bridges, which is basically that finders are keepers, by stating that an owner of land is presumed in law to own everything on the land as well so long as they exercise their ownership rights and demonstrate an intention to exclude others from the land and items. The court explained that in Bridges, the fact that the owner of the shop had allowed the public at large to enter the premises meant that they were not exercising a sufficient degree of control to benefit from, the, from this legal presumption, and therefore enabled the finder of the banknotes to acquire a superior claim to the shopkeeper. In effect, what the court seemed to say is that had the notes been found at someone's house, where the owner was clearly exercising their exclusivity rights of ownership, then the notes would have belonged to the homeowner and not the finder. This is an example where we see the ideas of intention and control playing an important role in the analysis. In our third case, called Hannah v. Peel, a court had to decide which rule to apply between Bridges 
and South Staffordshire. In this case, a soldier was staying at a house that was owned but not occupied by the owner. During the period of his stay, he found a valuable brooch. He was a good citizen and reported this to the police, giving them the brooch so that they may find its original owner. The police, having failed to find the owner, returned the brooch to the owner of the house, who later sold it. The soldier sued to get the value of the brooch back. The court was torn between the precedents of Armory and Staffordshire. As in Staffordshire, the court said that the owner of the land has a right to all the items found on the land given sufficient control was exercised. However, here in Hannah, the court cho chose to apply Armory, stating that the fact that the owner had never resided in the house and that the soldier had made a genuine effort to find the owner to be key deciding factors. In effect, the court was referring to the degree of control idea and deciding that merely owning a house while not occupying was not a sufficient degree of control. Therefore, this stopped them from applying the landowner or occupier presumption from South Staffordshire due to the landowner not exercising the degree of control required. Finally, to finish off this idea of control, we will look at a fourth and final case. It's a rel relatively recent case from 1982 called Parker v. British Airways. This case's story is a classic finder's case. Basically, a passenger found a gold bracelet at a British Airways airport lounge exclusively reserved for the passengers. Being a good citizen, the passenger asked the lounge staff to take the bracelet and to try to locate its owner. If the owner was not found, the passenger requested the bracelet be, re be returned to him. After the airline failed to locate the bracelet's owners, the bracelet was sold and was not returned to the finder. As a result, the passenger sued the airline for the value of the bracelet. This case turns on the idea of control as well. It is interesting because the airport lounge where the bracelet was found is neither so public as to match the shop setting in Bridges or as private as to match the hypothetical example of a private home. The court had to decide, effectively, whether the airport lounge was being controlled to a sufficient degree as to meet the requirements set by South Staffordshire, thus giving the bracelet rights to the airline over the finder. The court ruled that it did not, as merely the requirement to purchase a ticket was not an exercise of a sufficient degree of control over the airport lounge, and therefore, the passenger won the lawsuit. So, we can say from these cases that the general rule is still that of armory, that a finder has a better claim against all but the true owners of an item. However, in cases where the item is found on the property of someone, such as their house or land, then they may benefit from a legal presumption enabling them to keep an item even if it was found by someone else. This presumption only applies if they had exercised a sufficient degree of control over their property and did not let people access their land willy-nilly. The final case we will discuss is one of my favorite finders cases, and it's called Grastein v. Holman Freeman. Here, while cleaning the basement underneath a retail store, which was not open to the public at the time, an employee of the store found a locked box. He informed the owner of the store, which is also his boss, of the discovery, and the owner told him that it probably has some tools in it and they should put it away on a shelf. 
Subsequently to this, the original employee, alongside another employee, got curious and broke the lock on the box, finding money inside. The challenge then becomes to determine whether the basement owner or the employees had the better claim to the money found in the box. The finders here are relying on Armory, Hannah V. Peel, and Bridges to say that they, being the finders, should be given possession of the money. Hello, finders keepers. The basement owner is relying on cases such as South Staffordshire to say that the owner of the land has a better claim to items attached to or on the land and that an employee finds an item for their employer. This much is certain. The occupier basement owner did not know that the box was there initially and then did not know that it contained any money. Therefore, it seemed hard to make an argument that the basement owner showed any intention to exercise control over the box or money. The court acknowledged this. The court also, in obiter, or by passing, first decided that the box was lost and not mislaid, despite being on private property that was not open to the public. But how can a blocked box full of money be lost? Can you imagine that? It seems to me far more likely that someone locked the box with the money and left it there on purpose. In any case, the court went on to comment on the rule from South Staffordshire that when a servant or employee finds an item, he finds it for his master or employer, and hints that even if the claim turned on this rule, the court would have rejected it since the employee did not find the item in the course of his employment. But does such a limitation stay true to the policy reasons expressed in Staffordshire? An employee could simply return to an item on their worksite after their shift is done, pretend to be walking through the work area and grab it. Surely that cannot stand. Regardless, these findings set the stage and made the possession analysis that follows necessary. In the court's view, the claim instead turned on the discussion between the employee and the employer, where the employer told the employee to put the box on the shelf. The court saw this as the determining factor, giving de facto possession of the box to the employer. By storing the locked box on the shelf, the store owner was exercising control over it and an intention to exclude others. Moreover, the court likened the box to a building and applied a presumption, as discussed earlier, whereby the owner of a building is presumed to have owned its contents as well. The court said, quote, and I should think that the same natural presumption in favor of the occupier of a building, which I discussed earlier, exists in favor of the person who has the possession of a receptacle. He is presumed to have possession of its contents, but as it has been remarked, quote, there is no magic in four walls, and the presumption may be rebutted, of course, end quote. Therefore, the court reasoned that when the employees opened the box, that at the time, both the box and its contents had already been under the custody of the employer, and therefore, they could have no claim over them. Now, if that doesn't rub you the wrong way, you and I are not on the same page. First, there is no indication whatsoever that the owner of the basement knew what was in the box. And so for similar reasons, i.e. lack of intention to exercise control, shouldn't the presumption favoring the occupier, or here, as the court argues the box owner, be rebutted as it was in Hannah v. Peel? Moreover, the policy incentives set by this decision are also problematic. For instance, Let's say that the employee found the box but never told the employer about it and instead went ahead and broke the lock right away. According to the court's analysis, in such a case, it would have likely ruled that the employee had a better claim to the box and money. 
Do we really want to disincentivize people from reporting found boxes and containers? Surely not. The reason why I love this case is it has almost a little bit of everything. It touches upon most of the important ideas we've talked about and then uses many of the concepts we have discussed. Perhaps most importantly, even though this case features many of these concepts, it applies them in such a novel way, demonstrating clearly how hard it can be for lawyers to predict outcomes in such areas of law where the precedents are so inconsistent. To discuss this case and these trends further, I am delighted to welcome Professor Kimji from Queen's Law. Professor Kimji is currently serving as the Associate Dean for Academic Policy for Queen's Law. He is also the inaugural holder of the David Allgood Professorship in Business Law and the Director of the Queen's Business Law Program. His research interests lie in the areas of corporate law, commercial transactions, and intermediated securities. Furthermore, he was one of my favorite instructors and was my property law professor, introducing me to many of these finders cases and ideas. Thanks for joining us, Professor Kimchi. So the first question I have for you is, how is it that there still exist these areas of law where the precedents are so inconsistent? That's a complicated question, and I'm going to answer it in two parts. One, why do inconsistencies occur at all? And two, why do inconsistencies endure, like they have with the law of finders? So first, why do they occur at all? Uh, especially given that one of the fundamental values of the common law system is that like cases should be treated alike. So one issue here is that it's no two cases are going to be identical. You know, there will be many situations where you're going to find one or more distinguishing features in relation to each case, and then you'd be able to rely upon those distinguishing features very reasonably to reach opposite conclusions. The other issue is that legal adjudication, legal dispute resolution, that's very much a human process. You know, so you're going to have two legal teams arguing against each other, uh, and those two legal teams will have to make strategic choices about how to frame those arguments. Uh, and so what that means is you're going to get some variation on how like cases are argued. And then similarly, judges will have some variation on the values they bring to similar problems. And all of that together makes at least some inconsistency inevitable. Then the other question, why do inconsistencies endure? Uh, and you have to remember that law reform uh, is not free, right? It's, it's a very costly process. We don't have unlimited resources. We have to prioritize where we're going to allocate resources. For the law of finders, the relevant questions would be, is the fact that we have an unpredictable law of finders causing any social problem? Are we seeing violence because of it? Do goods cost more in society because of it? Are we increasing litigation costs in practice? You know, the answer to all of those questions is no. You know, that would at least partly explain why we haven't seen a legislative response to the law of finders. It's just not causing a social problem, the inconsistencies. I see. In any case, do you think that this is a weakness of the common law system? I wouldn't characterize inconsistencies as a weakness. Any legal system that we could design would involve some trade-offs. You know, for example, the common law can respond to changes in society in a flexible and relatively efficient way. The trade-off is that we're going to get at least some inconsistencies. But it's a trade-off. I wouldn't see it as a weakness. Well, that's comforting. <laughs> Do you think that there is a need for legislation in this area, given the inconsistencies and the potential for conflicting outcomes in the common law? Well, I would say that if our objective is greater consistency, more consistency, then what we really need is a set of common policy goals. 
You know, for example, we want to facilitate lost objects being returned to owners, and we want to incentivize honest behavior on the part of finders. Once you have that set of common policy goals, you'd start to see some more consistency, or at the very least, some less inconsistency. So your question is, you know, could the Supreme Court help here? The thing about the Supreme Court is that it's not always reliable. You can't always count on it when it comes to consistency. You know, so for example, one of the most unpredictable areas in corporate law is what's known as veil piercing. And in the 1980s, the Supreme Court had an opportunity to consider this area. And in its judicial opinion, at one point says explicitly, veil piercing follows no consistent principle. <laughs> but then it doesn't articulate a consistent principle. So the courts aren't always reliable. Even the Supreme Court isn't always reliable when it comes to wanting consistency. And then legislation... I've already suggested the problem with finders is that it's just not worth the cost. Mm. The inconsistency in the law finders isn't causing any serious social problems. And as a law teacher, I would say, I think finders is a great topic for first year students as a way of testing their legal reasoning skills. Gotcha. Well, for me as a law student, this question is quite pertinent. How do you think lawyers should approach such topics, given that the precedents are inconsistent and it can be difficult to predict how courts would rule, even if you make a good argument. I always tell my students that lack of predictability is not ideal for a planning lawyer, but it's wonderful for a litigator. Mm. To some degree, predictability can be negotiated for before the fact through contract, and that's what a planning lawyer would think about. Now, with litigators lack of predictability creates more work, right? It creates more opportunity. And I don't just mean that in the negative sense, you know, it facilitates opportunism, which of course it does, but there's also a positive spin-off that comes with the lack of predictability, and that is both parties have more of an incentive to negotiate. Neither will want to incur the cost of litigation. And litigators generally always recommend litigation as last resort. Negotiation is always better. Gotcha. So let's jump into the weeds a little bit. Remember that case Grafstein? Well, in Grafstein, we see the court deliver a nine-page summary of the precedents that we discussed, but then it decided to break off in a one-page judgment and deliver a possession analysis that seems rather arbitrary. Why do you think that was, and do you think this will further complicate this area of law? That's really hard to say. We have to remember that it's not only the Ontario Court of Appeals opinion in Grafstein where we see this phenomenon that you're describing. In finders cases, we quite often see more space dedicated to describing past cases than analysis of the present case. <laughs> yeah. I suspect what's going on is that judges, like all of us, are trying to make sense of a complicated area of law. They're given all these cases to look at by the litigators in argument, and the description of them in judicial opinions is simply an effort to make sense of it all. Do I think this further complicates the law of finders? No. Uh, it was already complicated to begin with, and the Ontario Court of Appeal was dealing with a factual situation that was quite unlike all of the cases that had come before. The judicial opinion is just a further illustration of how we just lack a set of common policy objectives in the area. Mm -hmm. For example, we have cases where the outcome was at least in part motivated by a desire to incentivize honest behavior on the part of finders. That motivation seems not to have informed the outcome in Grafstein at all. Thanks for your insight, Professor Kim Ji. Thank you so much for having me. Before we end the show, we would like to say that the views expressed on the show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, hosts, or the Queen's University Faculty of Law. This podcast does not contain any legal advice. Pro Bono Students Canada is a student organization. 
This podcast was prepared with the assistance of PBSC Queens Law Student Volunteers. PBSC students are not lawyers and they are not authorized to provide legal advice. The podcast contains general discussions of certain legal and related issues only. If you require legal advice, please consult a lawyer. For more Pro Bono Radio, check us out at probonoradio.com or on most podcasting platforms and broadcasting weekly on CFRC 101.9 FM, Kingston's only campus and community radio station. Today's show was produced and hosted by yours truly, Mukhtar Hindi. We're also proud to have hosted Professor Kimji of Queen's Law. If you like this interview, you can find more on the Queen's Pro Bono Radio website. Thank you for listening.